This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. This mini episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Molly West Duffy, an expert in organizational and leadership development. She's also the co author of the best selling book, No Hard Feelings. And here we are reading a letter from a listener. Uh, well, I think that that should take us into our last question, which is I, I think. Uh, a little bit more straightforward than some of the okay. others. Um, I, I think, at least in this one, like I want to encourage the letter writer to take a slightly different perspective, but in a way that will make things easier for themselves. Like, I, I don't think the issue here is that the letter writer is like um, charging ahead too quickly. I, I think that they're they're maybe thinking of this in terms of like an obligation to others or to the this sort of like abstract value. When, in fact, I want to encourage this letter writer to, to simply think a little bit more about what would I enjoy. So with that being said, I will, uh, I will simply read it. The, the subject is Sharp Right Turn. And yeah, you, you all know this one. Second verse, same as the first. Um, you could probably fill in the blanks. This, this happens to a lot of people, um, which is why I read variations of this letter a lot of the time because it's, it's very common. Um, but always, you know, it's different when it happens to you. And there's always, you know, unique little details that make each um, instance different from the last. So it starts with uh, a question. My family seems to be in a Christian nationalist cult. I was raised in a very small town in the Midwest. It's been over a decade since I've lived anywhere near my family. In the last few years, a megachurch has popped up in my hometown, run by a family with deep ties to Amway and Betsy DeVos's family. My family has always been Christian, but in the last few years, I've watched their views grow increasingly fundamentalist to the point where I don't feel safe going home as a proudly queer woman. I tried bringing this concern up to them and was met with anger and dismissal. My therapist urged me to have compassion for their limited understanding of the world and to go no contact for a while. I had hoped they'd be smarter than to fall for this. I'm furious, sad, and feel a sense of responsibility to my community to somehow try to educate my family and hold them accountable for the harm they do, but it's so taxing. As an aspiring ally, what's my role in mitigating this harm? Do I go no contact or try to de-radicalize them somehow? I, you know, I, I have felt for all the letter writers we've heard from today. I feel for this letter writer too. You know, I really understand the sort of sense of, you know, what's, what's my obligation here? But letter writer, I, I also just want to remind you, like, being an ally is, is like specific in particular. Like, an ally to to what and to whom? Like what you've described here basically just sounds like my family has become increasingly fundamentalist. They treat me worse and worse. When I try to tell them I'm worried about how their homophobia will affect me, they laugh at me. Like if there's a person here who needs an ally right now, it, it's you. I don't want you to feel like you need to be um, constantly showing up to see people who make you miserable out of just a general sense of, well, I should be allied to someone. Like ally work, I guess, is something that you can do in in different like degrees and instances. Um, and there's various opportunities. It does not mean you have to be miserable and visit your family who treat you badly when you would rather not. 
So, uh, you know, I would just encourage you to, you know, ally is not something that you like are all the time. It's something that you do in specific moments or, or with specific causes or specific groups. And so just in, in question of who needs the ally in the case of the meme family, it's you. <laughs> you need the ally. Be the ally to yourself. That doesn't have to mean going no contact. It could mean, you know, just occasionally texting your mom and ignoring everyone else or, you know, not talking to them for a few months and then, you know, potentially going it down for the next funeral or whatever. But um, absolutely, by all means, if you've tried multiple times to say like, hey, this cult sucks and you're mean and I'm queer and please don't be assholes about it and there's been no response, you don't have to keep banging your head against that brick wall. You don't have to be accountable to them for like again like you know it's one thing if like you say like i have a responsibility to my community but you said yourself at the top of the letter you don't live there you have very consciously made a different community for yourself elsewhere this is not your community and and holding them accountable like it's one thing like if you were present and they did or said something that could be harmful to somebody else and you just like sat in silence because you were uncomfortable. That might be an instance where I would say, hey, you know, do something, hold them accountable. But just being around like a bunch of aunts and uncles and parents who are dicks to you, that's not holding them accountable to anything. That's just suffering for no reason. Frankly, that's like kind of a Christian mindset, right? Like the value of pointless suffering is Christ-like and like, you know, get the Christian out of your own head by uh, not suffering needlessly. <laughs> I think your clarification around who needs the allies spot on. So yes, I think with any relationship, this seems like it's a really tough relationship and I, and I really feel for you. And I, um, I wish that it was different. I wish that the world we lived in was different with any relationship with families, boundaries are so important and figuring out what those are. And they are, they can be tough to figure out. You don't always get it right the first time, but being really honest with yourself about what those boundaries are and being honest with your family. Um, Mm. So as, you know, as as you said, Daniel, maybe it's just texting your mom. Maybe it's going home, you know, for a certain weekend a year, but not a holiday weekend because holidays are tough. Maybe it's not engaging in certain conversations. Whatever it is, is fine. Boundaries allow us to love people and to be loved. That's what Mm. they're there for. And when we have no boundaries, it's really difficult to have and receive love because people get on our nerves and we feel misunderstood by them. So that's what they're there for. So I think there's no right answer here. This is a difficult situation. If you had no relationship with them, that would be okay. If you had some relationship, that would be okay. If you had a a deep relationship, you know, okay, whatever feels right to you. And I think you're right. It's like, I want this person to tune in a little bit more to like what would feel good to them versus like, what does their family want or what does their family's church community need? Or, you know, what does their small town need or whatever it is? It's like, what do you need um, for yourself from your family? And I think, and this is me reading the between the lines here, mm-hmm. you know, there may be some sort of feeling like you're responsible for showing them what a proud queer woman looks like because mm-hmm. they may not know that many proud queer women. And so I understand that of like wanting to, to be there and, and have love for them to sort of show like, you know, a different way of living is like great and can be loved as well. And at the same time, you should not have to carry all of that singly on your shoulders because that's a lot. Um, And the fact that this family lives in a very small town where there's 
not a lot, you know, diversity going on, presumably, um, and they're increasingly growing fundamentalist and, and right-leaning, is not your sole responsibility to try to fix or to keep them, you know, on a, a different mental path. Right. If this were a situation where, again, like, if they were saying really horrible, like, sexist, racist, homophobic stuff, and you had never voiced an objection, and you just always kept quiet, I would probably have some different advice for you. And I would encourage you to have at least one difficult conversation with them where you made it really clear that what they were doing and saying was wrong. But that is so separate from over and over again, I try to ask them not to be homophobic and they get mad at me or they laugh at me. Um, That's like the difference between they don't know how you feel versus they know perfectly well how you feel and they don't care. That's the difference between like holding somebody accountable or being honest versus just like letting yourself be hurt by people who have demonstrated that they're not especially interested in treating you well. And so, you know, to that end, letter writer, I guess you can decide to have compassion for them if you want, but also, like, (laughs) I would invite you not to. It doesn't sound like they got radicalized because someone, like, threw them in a van one day when they were at the grocery store, and then a (laughs) clockwork orange style forced them to listen to, like, a thousand Amway pitches um, into, you know, Christian nationalism. It sounds like they started going to the church a lot and wanted to go further to the right, and so they did. So I don't think of this as like, oh, they're limited. I thought they were smarter. I think this was probably a little closer to something they decided to do because it brought them pleasure, a sense of satisfaction, an identity that they liked. And in some ways, that can even be harder uh, because it's one thing to feel sort of like pitying and superior to your foolish brothers who still labor in the darkness and only need to be, again, there's that Christian ideas, right? Like bring them into the light, show them that they may no longer see through a glass darkly. I I don't know that that's actually what happened here. I think that they chose to move further to the right and to pursue like a white Christian nationalist agenda because those are their values. And and that's really ugly. And, And that can be scarier than, oh, they've been deceived. Because if they've been deceived, it's not really their fault, and maybe someday they'll snap out of it. And if they chose it, then that means these people who raised me and who, in some ways, I love are also committed racists and, you know, like hate other viewpoints and choose to live in an incredibly remote, I'm willing to guess, incredibly white town where they can kind of um, make sure that things stay that way because that's what they want and value. That's heartbreaking. But I think that's closer to the truth than these poor victims or these, you know, limited, you know, they're still stuck in Plato's cave guys um, who need only to be let out into the light and they can say, ooh, forms and shapes. I I agree with that. I just want to, and I want to add something to that, which is if it's the letter writer's point of view that they fell for this and that somehow education might help, that may be true. And it, you know, there's, There's good research that shows, you know, if you spend the majority of your adult life around people who are exactly like you, other people become threatening, other um, lifestyles become threatening, other ways of seeing the world become threatening, and it just gets more and more entrenched. Um, But but some of it may come down to education, and not education in terms of, like, where you went to college, but just education about, like, being around 
other values, mm-hmm. other ways of living, and, and all of that. And that may be true. And I, and I think that that maybe is what the letter writer is getting at here, which is like, oh, like, if only I could like, you know, take you out of your small town and like transport you to live on my block and mm-hmm. like be neighbors with my neighbors and go to the communities that I'm a part of and sort of see like there's so much love in so many different ways and capacities that this family is not seeing. Like maybe that would change them. And that may be true. Again, it's not your responsibility. And to put that on yourself when your identity is something that already this community probably has problems with, that is a lot. Um, So it would be different if like you were a social worker and I assigned you to go to this community and Mm -hmm. to like bring diversity to this family. And, you know, that was like your job and, and you weren't connected to them emotionally and you weren't dealing with questions of identity with them as your family and all these things, like maybe that would be helpful. But it's just so much harder when it's your own family mm-hmm. and you're dealing with questions of identity with that family um, and just things can get emotionally messy and just tough. And like in the letter, I, I feel the weight of this on you. And as we've said before, like that's, you have the rest of your life. And like, I don't want you to have this weight on you for the rest of your life. Um, Cause it's not your responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So letter writer, it makes sense that you're furious. It makes sense that you're sad. I, I can also appreciate like something of a sense of like, they're my relatives, you know, their racism or Christian nationalism or homophobia are something that I'm a little bit more able to try to speak to than just like a random stranger on the street. So I, I can certainly appreciate a sense of, wanting to at least occasionally see whether progress can be made. Mm -hmm. But really, please don't feel like simply because you are related to them, it is solely your job to convert them to the side of like pluralism or open-mindedness or liberality. And of course, you can also only de-radicalize someone in as much as they are open to other perspectives. So if you, you know, reach out occasionally and you try and you're rebuffed and you're rebuffed, you know, and then you decide, you know what, I'm not going to get like yelled at for Thanksgiving this year. I'm going to go relax. Don't beat up on yourself. Don't worry that this means that you are um, letting yourself off the hook or take the easy way out. Um, that's that's not the case. That is taking care of yourself. As a, and again, like that can be such an empty sounding phrase. Like I, I can toss it around really easily. Like, oh, just take care of yourself. Do that thing, uh, which happens to be whatever you feel like doing whenever. I, that's not what I mean. I really mean it's incredibly painful to try to communicate to your family, like, I love you and I feel so horrified by the changes you have made in the last few years. And I really, really wish that you would listen to me because I say this out of deep love and concern for you and be met with, fuck off. Um, that's incredibly painful. So really, really let yourself grieve that, let yourself mourn that, let yourself mm-hmm. be angry about it. I wish they hadn't done that either. Um, I wish that you had written in to say, and in the last couple of years, I've just noticed they've become a like incredibly dedicated to like personal growth and increased delightfulness uh, and just being gracious all the time. And that's my problem. I hope you do something really, really nice for whatever the next holiday is for you that does not involve going to see any of them um, and take it one day at a time. If you'd like, we can close on a slightly lighter note. Uh, I have been having a sort of ongoing conversation with my guests about like folksy sayings. Um, and so Ooh. I've been getting occasional feedback from a lot of other people now just with like, oh, I grew up and like my mom said this kind of weird phrase and I never really knew where it came from. Um, and it's been really charming. Would you, would you mind if I read one or two of these? 
Yes, please. I love also, that. Also, if then if there are any either folksy or just like weird family sayings that you grew up with that you are prepared to share, I would immensely enjoy hearing them, but but no pressure. Also, somebody wrote in just to say, because one of the words we were talking about was criminently or geminently. Um, and they said, one example of criminently that you may have seen was from the Disney animated version of Robin Hood. Um, mm. And they were right. I had forgotten about it. It's when I think the the wolf who plays the sheriff of Nottingham is getting accidentally threatened by a little crossbow. And he says, criminently, get that pea shooter out of here. Um, <laughs> I would never have remembered that. But I, that's I a great reference. Either, And I totally <laughs> forgot that like, for some reason, the sheriff of Nottingham in that movie was like from the American South. He sounded like a cop from Cool Hand Luke, even though everyone else, I think, spoke with a British accent. British accent. Huh. And I mean, I get it. Like, he's a, he's a fucking cop. And like the shorthand for fucking cops is like a Southern white guy. <laughs> but um, kind of amazing. Uh, that, Interesting choice, Disney. Yeah. So then another letter says, your interest in folksy sayings awakened a memory deep within that I had of my mother of blessed memory saying Ishta. Most Northern Midwesterners will have heard Ufda, a Scandinavian expletive for any and all bad situations and a real staple of my vocabulary. But Ishda was her more specific expletive reserved only for the grossest of Uftas. I've heard it explained that if you step on it, you say Ufda, but if you step in it, you say Ishta. Um, that's beautiful letter, right? Thank you huh. so much. I, you know, was like just far enough north in Illinois that we'd heard of people saying Ufda or like we'd have like one great uncle who lived a little further up north who said it, but it always felt a little bit like stolen valor uh, whenever I say it, but I still sometimes do. Mm. Is that one you've come across? No, I haven't at all, but I'm, I love this and I'm going to keep that in mind. It's a, it's a nice Learned one. something. Yeah. Any any that you grew up with that you can recall? Um, this isn't like a typical saying, but often my, when my sister and I were complaining as kids, my dad, we would say like, that's not fair. He would say, who said life was fair? Oh, a and classic. That just oh, a horrible always, classic. Always that. And it was good. Honestly, it was good because I think, you know, so much of being a kid— like we had, we had so many elaborate rituals. My sister and I for like trading off, like who got to sit in the front seat of the car and who got, to, you know, it's like so much of our brain power was like fairness. Yes. And I think what he's trying to say is like, yeah, like that's not how life works at all. Like mm-hmm. you can keep track of this now, but it's not going to be helpful to you to keep track of this later on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. That one makes a, a lot of sense to me. Um, and I'm absolutely going to try to work Ishta into my conversation. Oh, also somebody wrote in because I was also apparently talking about daylight savings time recently. Um, and they said, I have some critical daylight savings time information for you. While everyone generally agrees that keeping only one time is the way to go, permanent DST, more sun in the afternoon, is bad for our health because it affects circadian rhythms. Even currently, yes. which side of a time zone you live on influences how much sleep you get. And then there's a link to an article that's just, the tagline is how living wrong side time zone can be hazardous to health. Permanent standard time is the way to go health-wise. That may be true, letter writer, but I always feel like people talk about circadian rhythms with like such assurance that it makes me a little suspicious. Like it's at the point with me now where people talk about blue light and I'm just like, I don't believe you. Whatever you're going (laughs) to say, you might as well be saying like evil witchcraft or little demons that live in your eyes. 
So I'm going to go on the record as saying I am skeptical on the subject of circadian rhythms, and I refuse to believe that the sun setting at 5.30 instead of 4.30 is going to mess up my sleep. So, you know, thank you. You're probably right, but uh, I'm going to choose to be radicalized on this issue uh, by my own worst impulses. I, I do agree. Like, so yes, I'm totally in agreement. It would just be easier if we didn't have to switch times all the time. Which we're not going to have to anymore after this year. But I do, I also agree that morning light would be, so I grew up in Seattle, mm-hmm. which is very far north. And we consistently went to school and it was dark out. And it is really hard to wake up and like go to school when you're like, it's still dark Miserable. outside. Miserable. So I understand it from like a schooling perspective of like, if it's not getting, you know, in Seattle with daylight savings time in the winter, it will not get light until like 9 a.m. Like you'll have been in school for an hour. That's tough. Versus like most people get out of school around 3 p.m. So I do see an argument for that. And and I similarly was skeptical, but I have been reading more about this because I've been trying to work on my sleep. Mm-hmm. And I do try to go outside first thing in the morning, not necessarily to exercise, but just to like be outside for 10 minutes. Okay. And it does feel good. I don't know if it's affected my sleep, but I do feel more awake for the rest of the day when I get outside first thing. Yeah. I mean, I usually have to get outside pretty early to walk the dogs and it just often makes me feel sort of a little annoyed. But I do think that it it does like have nice effects. I just feel like I want an authority on time. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like we should even be able to pass legislation about time. I think it should just always be one thing (laughs) that's totally out of our hands, but that I generally like um, and really get to control. So uh, those are my contradictory feelings on time. It should just be, there's one time, we all agree on it. There's no more arguments. We're just done. We have time. And the sun never sets before 5 p.m. because then I will lose it. And that, I think, is all the advice that I have within me today. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>